Welcome, folks, to another episode of Lessons from the Cockpit Show. I am your host, Mark Hacera, the author of the book Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit, which is the sponsor of this episode. For over 60 years, my passion has been aviation. I love everything airplane. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we investigate the tactics, techniques, and procedures aviators created and cultivated during extreme and extraordinary military, commercial, and private flying operations. Our exploration gives our listeners practical advice on how the aviation world works, but more importantly, expands critical thinking skills and expertise in the air and on the ground. Today, I'm gonna answer a question that I get asked a lot. When I'm out speaking, when I'm at ROTC units, talking to college students, I'm always asked this one question. And I came up with an answer many years ago when I was teaching at the Joint Forces Staff College. That question is, what books should I have in my library? So, grab an adult beverage of your choice. Sit down, strap in, and let's talk about the Book of the Month Club here on the Lessons from the Cockpit Show. Okay, bottom line up front. I realize all of us have our own book list. And I know that some people are going to criticize my list because I didn't have a certain book on it. Disclaimer up front. This is just my list, which I made when I was teaching at the Joint Forces Staff College. When a number of my students said, hey, what are some of the books that we should be reading on joint warfare or intelligence collection or decision-making on a battlefield? And so that's how I came up with this list. I went down to the Joint Forces Staff College Library and started pulling out certain books and reading them myself. And this is the list that I came up with that I gave my students while teaching And I still give to people who ask me, hey, give me something really good to read. Disclaimer number two, I would not recommend a book to you that I have not read. So all of these have been in my library. I have read and some of them numerous times, particularly one by Malcolm Gladwell, because it fits so good into the decision making process. And I'll get to that here in a few minutes. The first book I'd recommend to you is called 100 Days by Admiral Sandy Woodward. He was the British task force commander during the Falklands War. And after the war, he wrote basically a memoir of his experiences in the Falklands War. And he's brutally honest in some of the things that he uh, talks about there, particularly when it comes to some of the failures that they faced during the Falklands War. Now, you have to understand, the British had to go a long way to fight this war. When the Argentines took over the Falkland Islands, a British territory down in the South Atlantic, he opens the book talking about the Argentine daggers and the Exocet missile attack on the HMS Sheffield. And I have to tell you, that story is riveting because these airplanes were able to get in close enough to the battle group, launch their missiles, and the HMS Sheffield got hit, I think it was in the Combat Information Center, 
with a fairly large loss of life and the sinking of the ship. One of his lessons learned from that war, which the British military later filled the gap, was they lacked airborne early warning. The United States Air Force has the E-3 airborne warning and control airplane, big radar dish on top, sensors around the airplane that sense the electronics of anything that's radiating toward them. And the British went to war down there without that. The only warning that they had, the radars, were on the ships. And so sometimes it was too late to see these things coming in. The British Navy, though, was very successful with their Harrier jump jets off of their carrier. One of the reasons was the Americans, the U.S., had given them the new all-aspect Sidewinder missile, which they used to great effectiveness once they engaged those uh, Argentine airplanes. But they didn't have any early warning to tell them that they were coming. Another great story is about a place called Bomb Alley. And there's this one area in the... uh, amongst those Falkland Islands that all the British ships were spread out in. And the Argentines came in with their daggers and their A-4s and were able to attack the convoy that was inside Bomb Alley. One of their ships actually gets hit by a 500-pound bomb, a Royal Navy ship. The bomb actually goes through the ship and doesn't detonate because they fused it wrong. Once they realized the fusing was wrong, the Argentines changed it. One of their logistics ships, the I think it was called the Atlantic Conveyor, gets hit and is sunk with a lot of their logistics tail on board. Their vehicles and food and ammunition is sunk in Bomb Alley. Another destroyer, and I can't remember the name of it, also gets hit. But Woodward's book is so good because he's the commander of the task force. And he's talking about things that are happening and decisions that are having to be made in just seconds as the Argentines are attacking his ships from the air. One of the other great stories of the Battle of the Falklands was bringing down their Vulcan bombers from England all the way down to the Falkland Islands and the complex air refueling program that they had set up to get them down there. They were called Black Buck Missions. And if you go on Google and search Vulcan Black Buck Missions, Wikipedia will bring up this uh, long story about what it was like. They were refueling with Victor tankers out of the Ascension Islands. And there's this massive complex air refueling plant that has to go on in order to get one Vulcan down there. Some of the Vulcans had bombs in the bomb bay. A couple of them went down there with anti-radiation strike missiles. But these were like 8,000-mile sorties. It was extremely long, much like our B-2 missions now that last like 30 hours. So my first recommendation, 100 Days by Admiral Sandy Woodward. Another great book I want to recommend to you is called Hog Pilots and Blue Water Grunts by Robert Kaplan. Robert Kaplan is a New York Times bestselling author And he's written a lot of books on political, military experiences from around the world. He actually goes out, flies with people, and is on board ships, and really has written a great book that gives you a look into other missions that the military does. We aren't always going around killing people and breaking things. 
we actually get involved in a lot of humanitarian operations. And he talks about that in his book, Hog Pilots and Blue Water Grunts. One of the stories he tells is being on the USS Benfold, a uh, Arleigh Burke Aegis destroyer. And while he's on board, they have to do underway replenishing or unrepping. I've done this on the USS John F. Kennedy and actually got to control or drive the John F. Kennedy during an unrepping revolution of the USS Seattle. So I know what he's talking about here. And he describes what it's like pulling up next to this ship, watching shot lines go across with steel cables, fuel lines going across, food going across. And that's how you replenish these ships at sea. Many times you'll have two ships on these logistic ships, one on one side, one on the other of these like floating Costco ships. And they're passing things across the top of the ocean, 160 feet apart, 18 knots. And that's how they keep ships going at sea with fuel and lettuce and hot dogs and mail. And it's really an amazing thing to watch when they're underway replenishing at sea. And Kaplan describes what that's like in the book. His chapter 10 is called The Big Glider and the Jagged Edge Boomerang where he talks about B-2 operations from the island of Guam and Anderson Air Force Base, the bomber task force that's always deployed there because of North Korea, and describes the predator operations from Las Vegas. Anderson Air Force Base has B-52s, B-1s, or B-2s stationed there always, around the clock, 24-7, 365. It's called the bomber task force. And he's there watching all of this go on to kind of keep the North Koreans in check. That's the reason we have this bomber task force. During tense periods, the B-2, B-1, B-52s will actually fly missions up to the Korean Peninsula as a show of force. It's an, a really an amazing thing to watch. And when I was at Kadena, we were involved in some of these kinds of missions. He gets to watch predator operations the remotely piloted aircraft that's being controlled all over the world from Las Vegas, actually Indian Springs and Creech Air Force Base north of Las Vegas. This is an amazing thing to see and watch. UAV operations is something that we hear about, but we don't really understand what goes on behind the scenes. And that brings me to my next book. This next book is in one of my top five books that I would recommend to you. It is called Hunter Killer by Mark McCurley. He is the second in command of one of the attack squadrons at Creech Air Force Base that flies both Predators and Reapers. In his book, he describes the worldwide operations of UAVs, the Air Force Predator and Reaper program. And he's part of the assassination program going around trying to find ISIS leaders and eliminate them. The book opens with him in the seat and they're tracking Anwar Alalaki in Oman and they're about to fire a Hellfire missile at him and kill him. Now, this book 
really allows you to put your nose under the tent and see how the predators operate and how they collect intelligence and how they actually have to go through a really long process before they pull the trigger. What's really interesting about the publishing of this book is that it came out in 2015, the same time that the website The Intercept published classified documents called the Drone Papers and discussed openly in an open source classified documents and the drone assassination program during the Obama administration. I've linked to the drone papers below so that you can have some additional reading on this. But McCurley's book comes out the same year that all of this is exposed. I think the one thing that fascinated me the most about drone warfare is the expanse of operations and where everybody is. McCurley is in Las Vegas. McCurley's in Las Vegas controlling a Predator or Reaper drone either over Afghanistan or the Horn of Africa. He's talking to Special Forces soldiers on the ground that have eyes on the guy that they've been watching. And there's chat rooms open, secure chat rooms open, chatting back and forth with each other about what they're seeing and about what's going on. Intelligence officers that are saying things about, hey, look, he's driving this kind of a truck or establishing different patterns of life. It's really a fascinating look into drone warfare. Now, working in the Combined Air and Space Operations Center at Prince Sultan in Saudi Arabia, I got to see some of this. And it was really interesting to watch. They'll be over a target area and watching it for hours, maybe even days before a decision is made to shoot a missile. But one of the things that really shocked me about this is they kill Anwar Alalaki. The crew flying the Predator goes home. They can't tell their families about it. They see it in the news, but maybe the wife and the kids have no idea that McCurley was just involved in a newsmaking event killing a key ISIS al-Qaeda terrorist in Oman, and he can't talk about it. Can't say a word about it because it's all classified. You go to work, watch some guy that's a bad guy, kill him, come home, and have dinner with the kids like nothing happened. Can you imagine that? You just fired a missile at a bad guy. It's splashed all over the news, and you're at the table eating dinner with mom and the two kids. But this book really gives you a great look into predator operations and what happens when they find a high-value target and go after it. I would recommend that you read this book and also go to The Intercept at the link below and read through all of the different things down there. And you'll have a really good understanding and a really great look at drone operations around the world. Since we're talking about intelligence collection, I want to give you two more books that deal with Cold War intelligence collection and how two communities did this. The first book is called Blind Man's Bluff by Sherry Sontag. She is a reporter that dug into how submarine warfare during the Cold War, and this book discusses why submarines were one of our best intelligence collection communities during the Cold War. Particularly one story. 
one of our submarines went up into the Sea of Okutsk with Navy divers. And they clamped on phone cables, Russian phone cables, a monitoring device. And from that monitoring device, we were able to listen in to Russian generals and leadership in Moscow talking to the Far East fleet. And we gathered so much information on their missile systems, their submarines, things that were going on in the Politburo from these collection devices that were placed on the telephone lines. Now, this was obviously a really dangerous mission because you're going up into this sea which surrounds the submarine by Russian landmass and clamping these things on. But they did it and it worked. And because of this particular program, we learned a lot about the Russians and their capabilities during the Cold War. If you want to learn a little bit about submarine warfare and submarine intelligence collection, this is really a great book. The book came out in 1998, but it's also got a published date of like 2008. So it may have been updated, but this is a really, really good book on submarine espionage. While I was teaching at the Joint Forces Staff College, we had a class, a focus group on intelligence. And we had the XO of a fast attack submarine come in and talk to us. He read us into the programs, read us out at the end, and gave us this incredible briefing on submarines and what they do. I could not believe the type of intelligence that they were gathering. And it was amazing to hear his stories being in the Pacific and following one of these brand new Chinese subs and doing so many different things. He told us that on this deployment, literally every mission that a submarine can do, they did on this one deployment. And he had pictures of some of the stuff that they collected. I was amazed at how good these pictures are through a periscope. I can't go into what he was taking pictures of, but he told one really funny story. He told a really funny story about one of the submarines coming up to periscope depth. You see in all the movies that they make this really quick you know, scan of the area. XO of the boat makes this really quick scan and then goes back to a certain spot. And he goes, oh no, we've been had, and brings the periscope down. And they had a picture of a guy on his cell phone, an Arab national on his cell phone, talking to somebody on shore saying, hey, saying, hey, there's a periscope next to my ship. And so they had to kind of skedaddle out of the area because obviously these guys don't want to be found. That was just one funny story he was telling us. But he had all kinds of information that they were able to collect from these submarines. And that's why I read this book. Because he mentioned this book during this briefing. Blind Man's Bluff by Sherry Sontag and Christopher Drew. Great book on submarine espionage. Now, the second book on intelligence collection is also a bit dated. It came out in 1988, but it's the only book I've ever read on this subject. It's called Deep Black, and it's about satellite intelligence collection during the Cold War. A really fascinating book. I've been around satellite intelligence through my career. Believe me, these things can do incredible things. Not only electronic collection, photo collection, 
measurement intelligence. I mean, just a whole host of different things. But this book actually goes into some of the early programs of satellite intelligence collection during the 60s and 70s, and I think into the 80s, and really gives you an opportunity to kind of see what do these satellites do? And of course, they are so much better now. And some of the best classes I had when I was teaching at the KC-135 Weapons School was when the Space Weapons School came up and taught us about orbitology, how the GPS system worked, and it went into a little bit how space assets collect intelligence. They always talk about space-borne assets. And the book, Deep Black, will give you an opportunity, albeit a little bit dated, of how space satellites are able to help national security because of the information that they collect. The next book I want to recommend to you is one of my favorites and in my top five. It's called The Men, The Mission, and Me by Lieutenant Colonel Pete Blaber, the former commander of Delta Force during the very early portion and stages of the war against terror. A great, great book that I have read twice and listened to twice more. That's how much I think of this book. Pete Blaber's book is the reason that I put in my book, Tanker Pilot, a lesson learned at the end of every chapter. Because Blaber does a similar thing. Here's what I learned from these experiences. Here's what I learned from these events. And some of these events are incredible. And you get a kind of a behind-the-scenes look at how Delta Force and the Special Forces soldiers are operating in Afghanistan and then subsequently in Iraq. But there's one particular chapter I can listen to over and over and over again. And it deals with a gentleman by the name of Ali Muhammad. Ali Muhammad was an Egyptian army soldier that comes to the United States and wants to be in special forces. He's at Fort Bragg. He's teaching special forces soldiers Muslim culture. He's teaching them Arabic, all of these different things. He's also learning special forces tactics, techniques, and procedures while he's there. Because what he wants to do is stay in the military and then either go into the Secret Service, CIA, or the FBI when he leaves the service. All of the Army folks and the Secret Service, FBI, kind of stiff arming. While he is at Fort Bragg, he takes 30 days of leave and goes and fights with the Mahajadin during the Afghan-Russian War next to bin Laden. He actually knows bin Laden personally, and bin Laden actually gives him a name like the American or something like that. He comes back from leave and he tells his commander, hey, I went to Afghanistan. I fought with the Mahajadin. There's a lot of things you guys need to know. And of course, what do they do to him? They want to court-martial him. He's got all this incredible information, but nobody wants to believe him. They want to get rid of him. They want to court-martial him. So what does he do? Well, I'm going to go back to the team that likes me. And he goes back to Al-Qaeda, bin Laden and his team. Ali Muhammad is one of the planners of the embassy bombings in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam, which is why he is serving a life sentence in prison now. Really fascinating story behind this guy. 
in the early winter months of 2002 in Afghanistan, we've lost Bin Laden at Tora Bora. We're not sure where he's hiding. And Blaber and Delta Force are trying to figure out where'd he go? What's he doing? Where's he at? And he learns about Ali Muhammad and he goes to New Jersey to this supermax prison where Ali Muhammad is. He gets in front of Ali Muhammad and Ali Muhammad realizes he's not talking to a regular Joe. He sees that Blaber is in really good condition. He's asking certain questions and he even tells Blaber, you're special forces. And so finally Blaber says, yeah, I am. And then Ali Muhammad looks at him and goes, you want to find bin Laden, don't you? And he goes, yeah, that's why I'm here. And of course, Ali Muhammad says, take me with you. I'll take you right to him. I know where he's at and everything. Of course, the guards are going, you're not leaving this place, brother. Blaber brings a map of Afghanistan and puts it down in front of him. And Ali Muhammad says, you want to find bin Laden? And he points to a place on the map. He goes, this is where bin Laden is. And he points to the Shaikut Valley of Afghanistan. The place of kings is what it means in Pashtun. Ali Muhammad tells him, go find the spice merchants in the markets of the cities around the Shaikut Valley. Because the Saudis only like their lamb a certain way. That's a real key piece of intelligence he gives him. They only like certain spices on their lamb. Find those guys that are selling those spices and are taking them up into the Shaikut Valley and you're going to find Bin Laden because that's the only way he likes his lamb. While Blaber and a bunch of other guys are standing looking at the Shaikut Valley, they've got this old goat herder next to him. Doesn't speak a word of English. He's got his shepherd's staff with him and everything like that and they're talking back and forth in English. And the goat herder points with his staff to the Shaikut Valley, Takargar Mountain and everything, and he says two words, Bin Laden. And they all look at him like, what? Even the goat herder knows he's up there. So now they begin planning what eventually becomes Operation Anaconda. And if any of you have read about Operation Anaconda, the first week goes terribly wrong because we got the intelligence wrong. We're thinking there's 300 to 500 hardcore Al-Qaeda guys up there. There's probably 1,500 to 1,700 of them up there. And they're spread through all that area. And of course, Bin Laden is, in fact, there hiding. There's a whole bunch of command and control issues. Some of our best communications gear isn't working. But most importantly, what really changes part of the battle early on is the shootdown of Razor 3 on top of Takargar Mountain and Petty Officer Navy SEAL Neil Roberts falling out the back onto the top of the mountain with 75, approximately 75 hardcore Al-Qaeda guys around him. And then begins the Battle of Roberts Ridge. Blaber and his team have done all of this research, all of this intelligence gathering, and have planned all of this Leadership gives it to another group. And so things go very wrong very quickly. Pete Blaber gives his lesson learned from all of that, as he does throughout the entire book. He gives great lessons learned for working in the battlefield that apply to business also and to your daily lives. That's why this book is one of my all-time favorites, and I've listened to it and read it several times. The book is called 
The Men, The Mission, and Me by Lieutenant Colonel Pete Blaber. And I cannot recommend this book highly enough. I want to recommend to you two books on the Vietnam War. One of these I read when I was in high school and absolutely loved it. It got me so excited about being an Air Force pilot. I've read it probably two or three times. The author has since passed away. Matter of fact, both authors of these two books have since passed away. But these books are probably in my top 10. The first book is called Thud Ridge by Colonel Jack Broughton, the vice commander of an F-105 wing during the Vietnam War, and particularly during the 66-67 timeframe when a lot of F-105s that are nicknamed Thuds, hence the book's name, were getting shot down because of restrictions. This is one of those books that puts you in the seat of the cockpit, flying missions over Hanoi, getting shot at, dropping bombs, missiles whizzing by you. It will raise the hair on the back of your neck and get your heart going all at the same time. Really a great book. I recommend to a lot of ROTC cadets to read this book. Yeah, it's about the Vietnam War, which happened a long time ago. But still, this is one of the great books on air warfare, I think, that's ever been written. Jack Broughton talks about all of these different missions to different target areas, but he looks at the politics of the Vietnam War, particularly concerning surface-to-air missile sites, SAM sites. The Johnson administration wouldn't let the pilots destroy the surface-to-air missile system in North Vietnam because they thought this is just a Russian ploy to appease Hanoi. They're shooting down airplanes now, and all of a sudden, they've got to figure out how are we going to deal with this. And the Wild Weasel mission is born. They choose the F-100 as the first weasel airplane, two-seat F-100s. They put a fighter pilot in the front and they put some of these old strategic air command electronic warfare officers in the back. And a guy by the name of Jack Donovan says when they're building the wild weasel team, again, as an old strategic air command guy, now let me get this straight. You want me to sit in this airplane, go up and be bait to these missiles with a crazy fighter pilot in the front, right? And the term YGBSM is born. You gotta be essing me. And that has been the motto of the Wild Weasels ever since. They realize that the F-100 is not the right airframe. And they put the Wild Weasel mission in the F-105s. They're fast, fairly maneuverable. They can carry weapons and they start putting all of these electronic lumps and bumps around the airplane in order to find these SAM sites and shoot what's called a Shrike, an anti-radiation missile, at them. It's a really incredible game of cat and mouse, particularly since the bad guy gets to shoot at you first. You can't do anything to the SAM site until it shoots at you first. It shows hostile intention because of the rules of the war. 
And Jack Broughton talks about how crazy this is and how many of their guys are lost because they're trying to get out of the way of this missile that's coming at them. And a number of Jack Broughton's friends don't come home. Years later, Broughton writes another book that is a supplement to Thud Ridge. It's called Going Downtown. He couldn't put the names of people in the first book. In the second book, the Vietnam War is over, and now he can talk more openly about the people involved, some of his friends that are missing. And that is also a great book. But start with Thud Ridge and then read Going Downtown. Both of these books are fairly quick read, but man, it gets your heart pumping when he's sitting there dodging bullets, dodging surface-to-air missiles. He gets tagged really, really hard once, and he's losing control of the airplane, but he's able to make it back. And he's got this massive hole in the back of his airplane in the vertical fin. If we're going to talk about Vietnam and air warfare, you must read Fighter Pilot about Robin Olds. Robin Olds is a legendary commander of the 8th TAC fighter wing during the Vietnam War. This book was written with him and his daughter finishes it and publishes it. This is one of those books everybody should read because his leadership of the 8th TAC fighter wing is just legendary because he kind of stands up to the system. As part of kind of showing the system and the bureaucracy, the uh, quote-unquote middle finger, they all start growing these big mustaches. And you see these pictures of Robin Olds in this great big huge bushy mustache as kind of their irreverent way of saying, up yours, we're not dealing with all of this. When I was a young captain, my wife and I were just recently married and we went to squadron officer school at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. As part of the curriculum, you had to do a paper and a presentation on some famous war person. People were picking Clausewitz and Sun Tzu have been dead for a long time. And I said, I'm going to pick somebody that's alive I can talk to. In the Maxwell Air Force Base Library, it had a book like Who's Who in Aviation History. And there was Robin Ole. Not only was Robin Ole's name in the book, but his address in Steamboat Springs and his phone number, 303 area code. And I thought to myself, why not call him? That's the kind of guy I am. I'm kind of an extrovert. I'm just going to talk to him on the phone. I sat with the phone in my hand for probably a good 30 minutes before I dialed the number. I'm going to talk to a guy that's legendary in the Air Force. Finally dialed the number. Picks up the phone and goes, hello. And I said, is this General Olds? Yeah, who's this? I said, sir, I'm Captain Mark Hacera. I'm going through squadron officer school. And we have to do a hero paper on some person. And I wanted to talk to somebody that's alive that I can actually talk to and get information from. Well, Captain, what do you do? Well, I'm a KC-135 pilot. And there's this like pregnant pause. And he goes, oh, man. We love tanker guys. <laughs> and he goes into this story. He says, Mark, tanker guys never had to buy a drink at my bar. Any tanker pilot that came into Uban while I was there 
drinks were on the house because you guys saved us so many times. He says, what do you want to talk about? And I said, I want to talk about Operation Bolo from front to end and the Tainuan steel mill raid that you went on. And he goes, well, you got some paper and a pen? And I said, sir, I've got a legal pad and two pens right here next to me on this table. I'm ready to go. And he goes, okay, here we go. And he begins to tell me the whole story of Operation Bolo going up and shooting down seven MiG-21s over North Vietnam in January of 1967. Then he goes into the whole story of this steel mill raid, the only steel mill in Vietnam. And he is going in an F-4 under the weather with no terrain following radar, nothing. Just, he says, using clock to map to ground and drops these bombs on this thing. And he gets hit hard by anti-aircraft fire in the wing. And he's exiting out of the area They're firing at him from on top of the hills and he gets hit so hard on the wing that he's leaking fuel. But he makes it to a tanker and the tanker drags him all the way back to Ubon. And he says, that's why we love tanker guys. You guys pulled my butt out of the fire more times than I can remember. The book is called Fighter Pilot and it's the life of Robin Oles. This should be required reading for everyone because he too has a whole bunch of lessons learned in the book. He's a legend in the United States Air Force. One last thing about this phone call with Robin Olds. My ROTC instructor, Major Bob Hope, actually flew in his wing during the time period he was commander. Matter of fact, flew a lot of missions with him. So I already knew the legend of Robin Olds when I was going through ROTC at Brigham Young University. The thing about this phone call is I learned more about leading men in combat, about overcoming adversity, about dealing with the cards you've been dealt and doing the mission and mission accomplishment and the motivation it takes to do these hard things in the two and a half hours I was talking to him than I have learned in any class, seminar, or whatever you want to call it, since then. It wasn't too long after this phone call, I was in Ohio visiting my parents at Dayton. And of course, the U.S. Air Force Museum is there, and he was speaking that weekend. His airplane is on display there, tail number 829, that he got two MiG kills in. And they told me, he's going to be here, he always goes to one place, his airplane. So I went straight to that plane and waited for him. Five minutes, ten minutes later, he showed up. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm that young Captain Tanker pilot that called you on the phone. We talked about Bolo and the, and the steel mill raid, and he just beamed. And I got to spend another half hour with him. Later on in my career, I got an opportunity to talk to him on the phone again. I learned more from him about leadership and about flying in combat during these things than any seminar I've ever been in. It's one of those great experiences I look back on during my career, talking to this legendary fighter pilot and spending time with him on the phone and standing next to the airplane he shot MiGs down in. All of those notes that I took are in my journal. 11 pages of notes that I took, I transcribed into my journal later on, and I still have that journal with the rest of the 18 that I've written on a bookshelf. Now, Robin Old's career started during World War II 
And there's a book from World War II that should also be in your library. And it's written by the guy who was the fighter general for the Luftwaffe during World War II. The book is called The First and the Last by Adolf Galland. Galland being that fighter general. He chronicles the Luftwaffe, its successes and its failures, beginning with the Battle of Britain all the way through the end of the war. He talks about Gehring, Hermann Gehring, and the political problems he has dealing with his ego and trying to show Hitler that the Me 262 jet is not a bomber. It's a fighter plane. It's designed as a jet fighter. And he gets in trouble and gets fired. So what does a general do? Well, I'm going to go fly. And he ends up being in the Me 262 jet squadron of the Luftwaffe flying against the United States, going up and intercepting bombers all the way through the end of the war. This book is also one of those great books that talks about being in combat, the political intrigue that's going on behind the scenes, all of the things that they're trying to do as the American bombing campaign is just blowing them into oblivion. They're still trying to build fighter planes. They're hiding them in caves. Albert Speer is doing all these things to keep Germany fighting because they cannot overcome the industrial might of the United States. He realizes when he sees P-51s flying all over Germany, we got a problem now. He also talks about all of the friends he lost during World War II. You see, the German Luftwaffe had this policy, you fly until you're either injured or dead. And some of these pilots were flying 9, 10, 12. In one case, down in Africa, one guy flew 17 missions in one day. And these guys are exhausted. And they're fighting the American bomber force and fighter force that is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And he loses a lot of his friends. Adolf Galland is one of those legendary men of aviation I wish I could have met. I learned while I was in both the military and in business. What are our competitors thinking? How do they operate? What's their culture? What are they thinking? Why are they making the decisions they're making? And the book, The First and the Last by Adolf Galland, gives you that opportunity to kind of peek inside what's going on in Germany and the German Fighter Command during World War II. In August of last year, I was listening to a podcast and they're interviewing Rick Tallini, retired Lieutenant Colonel, MiG killer, and an F-15 during Desert Storm. He shot down a MiG-25 in a classic kind of air-to-air combat maneuvering engagement. And in this uh, interview, Rick Tallini talks about intuitive expertise and how fighter pilots have to have this instinct to be able to think two or three moves ahead of what their adversaries are doing. And once you've developed that skill and you get in one of these engagements, time kind of begins to slow down 
even though you're going 450, 500 miles an hour, because your intuition takes over and you naturally move the stick and are looking at things in the cockpit and getting ready to shoot because you have this intuitive expertise that comes from your training. Gary Klein in Sources of Power talks about this intuitive expertise that people create from past experiences and from education and experience on the job training. And he interviews firefighters and emergency OR nurses and notices some very interesting common denominators for how people act in stressful situations and why they make the decisions the way they do. Because a lot of times, people in these stressful situations will just look at the situation. They're not methodically going through uh, some kind of checklist or not really being logical at all, but are just reacting to movements and what they see and what they hear, what they smell. And really your five senses are part of your decision-making process if you're a firefighter or a nurse, particularly for a fighter pilot. And this book, Sources of Power by Gary Klein, really goes into that. Now this is one of the classic books on decision-making. And the second book I wanna recommend to you is by Malcolm Gladwell. A lot of people either really like or don't like Malcolm Gladwell. I personally really like Malcolm Gladwell's books. And one particular book that kind of capitalizes on Sources of Power by Gary Klein is his book called Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. There have been numerous times where I was flying in the tanker, where I had to make decisions based on very little information, very little training, or experience with a particular situation, particularly when we were flying out of Hawaii and had a fire under the floor, the airplane wouldn't pressurize. And never in a million years would I translate not being able to pressurize with a fire under the floor. I began making these decisions kind of intuitively. Squawk 7700 and ident. Let them know we're an emergency aircraft. Let them know where our position is in case something really drastic happens make a left descending turn down to 9,000 feet so we can get off oxygen, head back toward Hickam Air Force Base so that we can land and get the plane back on the ground, even though my guys in the back are fighting a fire. That's kind of to the extreme. Malcolm Gladwell in his book Blink talks about why people go through this decision-making process and make snap decisions based on expertise and previous experiences in one particular chapter, he talks about Joint Forces Command was having an exercise called Millennium Challenge as a runner-up to the Iraqi invasion. They asked Lieutenant General Paul Van Riper from the Marine Corps to be the Red Forces Commander. He destroyed the Blue Force because he did things based on how he knew his adversary, the blue team, was going to react and how they would do things and how they would think. On the first day of Millennium Challenge, he had little small boats following the aircraft carriers and destroyers and cruisers of the Americans, their amphibious assault ships, and sunk like six of them with cruise missiles. Totally sent the exercise off balance. 
because the blue team was using all these new concepts and having all this information, being able to go through it. And he intuitively knew the Americans and the Blue Force are going to act a certain way. And he did just the opposite. We knew from bin Laden and chasing him that uh, the Americans can listen on cell phones. So during Millennium Challenge, Van Riper was sending messages via couriers on motorbikes and would send command and control information via Muslim prayers. Totally threw everybody off. The next day, Van Riper comes back in. The ships are all floating again as if nothing happened. And there was a lot of, uh, shall we say, grinding about what had just happened. If you're going to have an exercise, then learn from it. And Van Riper in chapter four, I think it is of Blink, talks about all of these decision-making processes he was going through based on his experience. And he was a very experienced Lieutenant General. He had been fighting in Vietnam, was the head of uh, Marine Corps University at Quantico. Really brilliant guy. And fortunately for me, during my career, while I was teaching at the Joint Forces Staff College, I had two or three seminars with him as the senior lead. And it was amazing to listen to this guy. He really thinks differently than a lot of commanders I have spent time with. And he went through all of this decision-making process, how to make decisions on the battlefield. And he talked about this book, Blink. So I highly recommend the book, Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking by Malcolm Gladwell, and also Sources of Power by Gary Klein. If you really want to get the nuts and bolts of how decisions are made, particularly in stressful situations. The next book I want to include in the Book of the Month Club is called Thunder Run by David Zucchino. This is a really powerful book. During the invasion of Iraq, General Blunt of the 3rd Infantry Division tells Colonel Perkins to make a thunder run, an armored thrust into Baghdad. And David Zucchino is the embedded reporter that goes with them. What happens is on the 5th of April, 2003, these tanks and armored personnel carriers go right up the gut into Baghdad. They take a main highway and go into Baghdad and then to the Baghdad International Airport, end up staying the night there. Three of the objectives, which are intersections on this highway, are called Moe, Curly, and Larry. Can't go to war without the Three Stooges. They get to the airport, they spend the night, wake up the next morning, and find an Iraqi army group on the other side of the airport and have this firefight and suppress them. And then on the 7th of April, they go from the airport all the way to downtown Baghdad to Saddam's palace. Objective Woody East and Woody West. This book is really one of those hair-raising kind of books where they're getting shot at from the overpasses. There are cars coming at them. They don't know if there's civilians inside or terrorists inside, and they just keep rolling. During this thunder run, a gentleman in one of the tanks 
puts his eight millimeter video camera on the outside and either duct tapes it, Velcros it, I don't know what, to the outside of the turret of his tank. And while I was at the Joint Forces Staff College, I had a tank commander that had been in this Thunder Run that brought it with him. The original movie, I think, runs about 22, 25 minutes. On YouTube, it runs for about eight minutes. I've linked to it in the show notes, and it is the most fascinating thing you've ever seen. These tanks and Bradleys are rolling down this highway. The Iraqis, some of them don't even know that they're there and get blown away. There are Datsun King Cab trucks going by them, and you can see the tank turrets moving and shooting at them. All of this is described in David Zacchino's book, Thunder Run. This book is probably in one of my top 10. It's different. I know it's not about air power, but it shows the audacity of a commander to take his unit and thrust it into the heart of the enemy's capital. Not once, but twice. And of course, there's pictures in the book. There's some just heartbreaking instances where there's a staff sergeant, I think his name is uh, Stevan Booker, is on the top of the turret. He's just kind of helping him direct the gun and calling out targets. And he gets shot and killed on top of the tank. And I think he gets the Distinguished Service Cross or the Silver Star. It's upgraded to Distinguished Service Cross. But this book, Thunder Run by David Zucchino, talks about this ground warfare, absolutely dagger to the heart with tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles going into the heart of Baghdad, first to the airport, then to his palace. And it ends the war. And I think in the book toward the end, they get to the palace and of course the doors are locked. And one of the tank guys goes, oh no, they're not. (laughs) And fires a tank round through the doors of Saddam's palace. And then, of course, they go in there. And I think there's a picture of a couple of them smoking Saddam's cigars sitting in their living room. But this book is called Thunder Run by David Zucchino. Really great book. Okay, last book is my book, Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit. There's been two other books that have been written on air refueling. One's called Passing Gas. Another one is called uh, uh, History of Air Refueling, by a British gentleman talking about mostly drogue refueling. I wanted to write a book that shows a behind the scenes look at air refueling, not only in combat, but in peacetime. And I wanted to write in such a way that I could say, here's the lessons I learned from this. Opening chapter is on Desert Storm. It's called Drinks for Poobah's Party. I went back and found a lot of these people that I dealt with during my career. In Poobah's party, the weasel package was being led by a great American, Colonel George John Boy Walton. He still had his lineup card from that night, and he PDF'd it and sent it to me, and I was able to reconstruct that particular chapter. I want you to understand that nothing happens with the military unless tankers are involved somehow. Whether it's humanitarian operations, exercises in faraway places, combat, long-range strike, tankers are always involved. And we are giving off 
and we are transferring mind-blowing amounts of gas. Two B-2s went and struck Libya. 905,000 pounds of gas for them to do their missions. And that was confirmed by the guy who did the planning for the mission. I wrote this book so that you could see air refueling and how we plan, how we execute, and how air refueling is such an integral part of national security. And it was fun to write. There's a lot of humorous things that happen in it too. We get our nozzles snapped off of our boom on our very first combat mission, combat support mission in Desert Shield by a Saudi F-15. There's this banter back and forth through the boom interphone when we're flying Northern Watch missions with a gal and her F-16. It was just a fun book to write. There's 32 pictures in the book. Some of them are taken by my receiver friends, one particular F-14 Rio, Dave Parsons. And a lot of them are pictures that I took. I kept my camera with me on the floor next to me. The hardback has the color versions of the photographs. The softback, they are in black and white. Audible and Kindle versions, it's an extra file that you download with the, uh, with the book. But my book is called Tanker Pilot Lessons from the Cockpit. And the foreword was done by Rush Limbaugh. My good friend Rush Limbaugh didn't tell me this. He actually, in the Audible version, read his foreword. I was surprised. I was shocked. He didn't tell me this. And I wrote to him an email. I said, hey, I didn't know you read your own forward. He goes, yeah, I wanted it to be a surprise. But he was really instrumental in helping me get this book published because he sent the manuscript of my book to his publisher of the Rush Revere series. And I got a phone call two weeks later saying, love your book, love the idea, love the pictures. We're going to do it in nine months. Normally it takes 12 to 15 months. The book is called Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit by yours truly, Marcus Era. We've come to the end of this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit, talking about Book of the Month Club. I wanted to give you, my listeners, some really good books that you can go out and purchase to read this spring and this summer when you're sitting on the beach or by the lake. And these are books, again, that I've really enjoyed. Many of them I've read several times and will continue to read too. In the show notes below, I've linked to the Amazon page for each one of these books. So you can go there if you want to purchase them. Most of them come in all four formats, hardback, softback, Audible, Kindle version. Some of them don't because they're so old, like Blind Man's Bluff and Deep Black. But all of these are available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Previous episodes of Lessons from the Cockpit can be found on my website, marcusera.com. And we're grateful to Tanker Pilot Lessons from the Cockpit for being the sponsor of this episode. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Have a great week.